This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Very good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio on this Fed Day. Of course, the Fed decision, and we do have headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal as we speak. Fed maintaining its balance sheet roll-off cap at $50 billion a month. And as for the headlines, uh, the Fed saying the risks are roughly balanced, monitoring global events, raising rates as expected, signaling two 2019 hikes versus three in September. Uh, the Fed judges that uh, some further gradual, gradual increases are warranted. So I feel like, Jason, Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, that they're pulling back just a little bit. The risks are, quote, roughly balanced, and they are monitoring global events. We are going to have so much more on this. we got a team here to break it down. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, Focus on the Fed, brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network, the RIA broker-dealer that's won the J.D. Power Award for Highest in Independent Advisor Satisfaction among financial investment firms five times in a row. Visit Commonwealth.com for more information. We're going to get some more information on today's Fed decision. As expected, the Fed raising rates, signaling two 29 hikes versus three in September. So maybe, Jason, a little bit of that dovish hawk. Charlie working through uh, the markets. And we did certainly see a blip in terms of the uh, equity trade. And right now, we were up about 298 points on the Dow prior to that decision. We're now just up about 121 points. The S&P was up about 29, now up about 10. And the NASDAQ was up about 66. So it's now up about 14. So we've seen certainly the equity markets pull back. Absolutely. But not pull back in any sort of hugely dramatic way. So let's dig into this. Let's break it down. Uh, For that, we have Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson. He's with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Kathleen Hayes, Bloomberg's Global Economics and Policy Editor. Kathleen, let me start with you. Uh, You were watching it all come down, eagerly anticipating. What did you see? Well, I think obviously the most important thing here is the fact that they the the dots have shifted just enough for the median forecast for 2019 to be two more rate hikes. Previously, it was a very very narrow majority around the uh, three. Uh, it wasn't. It was a very very spread apart. And it looks to me, as I glance at my uh, Bloomberg dots go screen, that the 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 highest dots maybe shrunk a little bit. Um, lowest ones didn't move that much. So now I think you've still got a rather narrow focus, but for two instead of three. Very, very important. I want to give you some more of the language from the policy statement, which said, quote, economic activity has been rising at a strong rate. Um, they see the risk to their outlook, quote, roughly balanced. And they did flag threats from a softening world economy. That would be hard, I think, not to mention. And in fact, they're going to continue to monitor global economic and financial developments. I guess that's markets like stocks assess their implications for the economic outlook. But I think also one of the things, um, the remember how they keep talking about further gradual rate increases? Right. Well, what they, they used to say expects that further gradual increases would be required. Now it's 
judges that some further gradual <laughs> increases will be needed. Again, a tiny shift, but it, it, this is not a huge move, but it's a very small concession, I think, to this idea that, hey, guys, things right. have changed since the September meeting, and it's time to just dial back and be a little more cautious Our now. Luke Cower, who watches the uh, financial markets for us, he's a markets reporter, just putting on the Bloomberg Live blog about the Fed move. What's interesting here is that virtually nothing changed in the Fed's assessment of the U.S. economy. He writes, goes to reinforce that most of the angst has been about financial markets rather mm-hmm. than the economy. Let's bring in Dave Wilson because, Dave, I did watch the equity markets. I mean, we had quite a, a decent rally heading into the Fed uh, news. We're now down on it the S&P and the Nasdaq. So it we, we have off. pulled back rather You've dramatically. Yeah. Absolutely. If you thought going in that the performance of the stock market might give policymakers pause in terms of raising rates, well, it didn't happen. And you know, if you look ahead to next year, you still have that anticipation of two rate increases. And you know, some people might tell you that we don't need any at all. And, and certainly what's interesting from a stock market perspective, I saw a statistic that I think if you go back to 1980, there have only been two times when the Fed has raised rates when the S&P 500 was down for three, six and 12 months. This is number three. So it's not like... The history the, books are being rewritten, right? Yeah, the, that's what we're looking at here. Well, but, and but, so, but where is where is the thinking about that if the Fed feels comfortable enough with the data points to say that the economy can deal with another rate increase, where is it that investors say, hey, that's good news. That means the economic well, outlook seems okay, that it's strong enough to endure another rate increase. I think part of something that I find a little bit um, not 100% convincing about that comparison, Dave, that so many people, oh, they can't possibly do it because they've really done it in the past. You have to look at the economic context. You have to look at what the economy was doing when you had those big stock market sell-offs. And actually, I think that's what's different here. And a lot of people failed to think about that, especially equity investors are so upset about losing so much money. You still got 3.7% unemployment. You've got forecast for at least 2.5% GDP next year. You've got payrolls growing. You've got consumer spending strong in the holiday season. Now, I can give you, and I tend to t- tend more agree with the, the concerns about the economy, but I think that's what they're looking at. And of course, that's the argument that our Bloomberg economics team has made. The Fed still is relying on a forecast. People like Stan Druckenmiller talking to Bloomberg just a couple of days ago saying, you know, you have to look at the kind of the leading indicators, which often do have to do with credit markets, yep. with stock markets, with commodities, which have weakened, right? right? Right. But the Fed seems to be figuring that there's the the forces are in place. I would still say, if I'm an investor, I'm pleased that the Fed has acknowledged that it's time to take a second look. And let's also put this in the context of Trump's criticism. This helps preserve, I think, their sense of we're doing this our way and we're not doing what the president says. Kathleen, what about um, the interest? rate on excess reserves. We only got a 20 basis point rise. It was as expected. Uh, Does that tell us anything or what? It tells us that this is such a a complication I don't think the Fed was thinking about because the old way of managing Fed funds was different and simpler because you had a tinier balance sheet, right? And you used to just go in and buy in securities and then sell them again. We used to call them every day. But now with all this big balance sheet and a different way of managing the reserves, you thought the IOER, interest on excess reserves, could be the top, but the band has been narrowing for for all kinds of reasons, like they buy more treasury bills now because they're not buying long-term paper. It right. gets kind of technical. I don't think it's a policy signal, but it just goes to show that undermining this balance sheet has been more complicated than expected. One other number I want to throw out, the Fed trimming its growth estimate, yeah, and we may have said this right, uh, yeah. for 2019 to 2.3%, still three-tenths of a percentage point higher than the consensus estimate. And I don't know, Dave, you know, you're listening to what market watchers have to say. I... 
<laughs> it feels like in the past week or two, everybody's just kind of throwing in the towel saying, go to cash, get away from the equity markets. Um, to some extent, I feel like everybody is so cautious. And I do wonder that if growth starts to, to come in better than what is forecast, uh, you know, whether or not then the views will change so quickly. There is always that potential, no question. And it's been more an issue of how far down is down, not just when you're looking at the economy, but also when you're looking at corporate earnings. I mean, we know that next year, the effects of the uh, tax cuts that were done at the end of last year will pretty much have been worked into the numbers. Analysts are anticipating slower growth. The question is, how much slower? And do you get to the point where you get an actual decline in profit? You have some strategists talking about that. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, for one, raising the possibility of an earnings recession, two quarters where you see S&P 500 profit decline. And against that backdrop, you can sort of understand the concern with the latest decision simply because it becomes an issue down the line in terms of how bad things get. So I I want to bring in another comment from Luke Cowell. I am loving Luke reading him on this uh, top live blog right now. He says it's a little interesting that the language about future rate hikes, all bold in his writing, (laughs) wasn't softened even more. If you're a central bank that's trying to preserve some optionality and you're still signaling that, quote, some further, quote, increases are warranted, you're seemingly pre-committing to the plural and also saying the market is wrong right now, today's point. Oh, yeah. boy, I think that's, I think that's um, interpreting. I think Luke is interpreting very, I mean, some further gradual, is, you know, I, I guess so. But I, I, I don't know. I still see some conditionality. And also one more thing that our Brendan Murray, our, our eco-fed uh, team leader in Washington, points out as one of the key takeaways, that the neutral Fed funds rate median estimate, okay, the average of everybody's. And remember, they, this is the meeting where they update their summary of economic projections. They yeah. house the economy, et cetera came down a little bit. The median is now 2.75. It had been 3% in September. If we're at 2.25, 2.5 is the top of that range now. You're just 125 basis point away from the median estimate for the neutral funds rate. I think that's something that um, regardless of what they wording they kept about further gradual increases will be warranted based on the economy. They're another subtle way they're saying, well, but maybe not as much as we thought. Yeah, exactly. All right. Great analysis, guys. Thank you so much. Kathleen Hayes, of course, uh, of our Bloomberg uh, economics team and following uh, everything here in terms of the Fed. And of course, our Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist. I just want to rehash, of course, here's the news. The Federal Reserve raising borrowing costs for the fourth time this year, ignoring a stock market sell-off, defying pressure from President Donald Trump. He's been tweeting a lot about the Fed lately while dialing back projections for interest rates and economic growth in 2019. I just want to point out that uh, the equity markets have definitely pulled off their highs of of, uh, the day as a result of that Fed decision. In fact, the S&P and the NASDAQ now just a little bit lower. And as for the uh, Treasury trade in terms of reaction there, uh, the yields right now, we've got that 10-year note down to 279. So we've seen that pull back uh, a bit and taking a look at the shorter end of the yield curve, uh, pretty much the same. That two-year was yielding about 266 heading into the decision right now, Jason, at about 265. And we will, of course, be listening very shortly uh, in about 20 minutes or so, less than 20 minutes. Right. For a press conference from Fed Chair Jay Powell, obviously people, to say the least, hanging on his every word, especially, as you say, as the market tries to interpret what to make of this. Uh, we just had uh, Scott Minard from Guggenheim on Bloomberg Television saying that the Fed statement isn't as dovish as the market had discounted. An interesting insight there. 
The Fed, of course, out with its latest uh, decision, last decision, in fact, on interest rates in 2018, as expected, uh, raising rates, trimming its forecast for hikes in 2019 from three now down to two. As we await the press conference with Fed Chief Jay Powell, that'll happen at the bottom of the hour, so just about 15 minutes from now. Let's get some analysis on what we heard from the Fed. Francis Donald in the house, senior economist at Manulife Asset Management in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Jeffrey Cleveland. He's chief economist at Payton and Regal. He joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. Francis, let's kick it off with you. So the Fed, okay, dove. How much of a dove did Jay Powell come off or not even much? This barely fits the definition of a dovish hike from my perspective. We could have gotten so much more pessimism baked into this statement. This is not going to be enough for markets to feel satisfied that they've made a real turn in their view of what's happening in 2019-20. There weren't significant changes to the language. They could have changed further gradual increases to adjustments, for example. All they did was add the word some, no changes in any material way to longer run growth expectations. And those dots, they could have done so much more to them to signal. So the, the The big issue here is that there's still a substantial disconnect between what markets are expecting and what the Fed is suggesting is going to happen next. And so, Jeffrey, what do you make of that disconnect? Do you agree with what Francis just laid out? How do you read it? Yeah, you have a huge disconnect right now between the the market and the Fed. The Fed is saying still additional rate hikes. I mean, is it two? Is it three? That's still more than the market has priced in. And the market's throwing a bit of a fit right now. The curve is flattening. I think you, you that's what you're seeing reflected here in the aftermath. And I would say actually the, the statement was marginally hawkish, if I can use that phrase, in, in the sense they did, you know, it was easy to throw in some, some risks, just, you know, pay, pay respects to the global risks. But, uh, you know, that, that's pretty cheap and easy to do. They, they didn't really do anything fundamental to shift their view. They still see the economy's on track and they're going to be hiking further and the market doesn't buy it. Who's right? So, um, Francis, come in on that first. Are the markets right or the financial markets right in terms of what they're seeing in the economy? It's not like we have CEOs coming out and telling us everything's falling apart, although we did have the FedEx CEO or the FedEx uh, company coming out with their latest uh, results last night, and they were kind of you know talking about slowdowns in terms of uh, the global economy. But who's right? Is it what the Fed's looking at and what they're seeing for the economic outlook, or are financial markets right? Well, historically, financial markets have been right. So that's an important consideration. But the way that I look at this is someone who actually has to make investment decisions is the risk is asymmetric here. The market is already pricing in less than one rate hike for 2019. The Fed's still at two. Which direction is it more likely to go into? I'd say in the near term, we're more likely to have to get closer to the idea that two rate hikes is possible, especially because Q1 and Q2 of 2019 actually look like they could provide some upside surprise. Where I think the Fed is wrong here is on that 2020 rate hike. They still have baked into their dots. 2020 is shaped up to be a really difficult year. Does anybody really have visibility on 2020? Let's be fair here. How much How much do you really feel like you can look, Francis, at the outlook and say, okay, I feel pretty confident about this? So the hard truth is that economists really don't have great visibility more than 12 months out. But there are some things that we know impact an economy without a, with about an 18-month lag. And those things are monetary policy. We already know that we have substantial rate hikes in the pipeline. The bulk of that will hit in 2020. We know that there's a substantial fiscal drag that's going to happen in 2020. We know these things. Unless there's a material change to them, we know that these are going to create a good drag on growth in 2020. Now, if they're hiking in March of this year, they're hiking into that soft patch of growth in 2020. So to me, exactly. To me, the big disappointment today, or what will really weigh on the market sentiment is not 2019. It's that persistent 2020 dot and that failure to revise 2020 expectations lower for growth.
So, Jeffrey, just come on in and in just a second, but just reminding people, the markets you know, are continuing to bounce around a, a little bit. We have the Dow up about four-tenths of 1%, S&P up about three-tenths of 1%, NASDAQ still trading lower, about two-tenths of 1%. So, Jeffrey, I, I turn to you in about 11 minutes or so, give or take. We're going to hear from Chair Jay Powell. What do you need to hear from him to – or what do investors need to hear to make them feel better uh, about this decision and about this statement? I, you know, I think the markets are, are getting this wrong, you know, getting the outlook wrong. This could be just liquidity issues, balance sheet constraints. We're, we're going into the end of the year, and people are maybe making, you know, looking at the market moves, declines in equities, and then changing their macro story. And the way they do that is, they, oh, there's these, these things globally that are, that are risks. And I just think we've gone too far in that direction. And so anything he can say to just convey, reiterate the strength that the, that the Fed is seeing, the, the underlying strength of the U.S. economy, the strong labor market conditions, yes, there are risks, but everything still seems to be on the right track. That could maybe bring the, the market around, but I don't know. There's a wide gulf as we head into this press conference uh, from what I'm seeing on the screen. So, Jeffrey, let's talk a little bit about that press conference. What do you want to hear from uh, Jay Powell, who is – Jason and I talk about this all the time – magazines covered some really you know great perspectives on him in terms of his background right he's not the academic that we've seen from a janet yellen or a ben bernanke this is a, a real practitioner it understands washington understands the investment world so well, what maybe he'll yeah maybe he'll go back to his analogy that he rolled out a, a couple of weeks ago you know just uh, reiterating that as long as the data justifies it the fed thinks that it's moving back towards a neutral setting they don't know exactly where that neutral setting is. The analogy he used, of course, is that light switch in a darkened room. Right. They, they still think it's higher than, than where we are right now in terms of the Fed funds rate setting, but they're not wedded to that. Uh, it's not a preset course. I, I think that's the, that'll be the underlying mantra that, that he tries to lay out. But I, again, the market has a very different scenario in mind. Uh, the market is thinking that this is, you know, we, we've had a rate hike here, but that's it. We're done for the cycle. That's what I see priced in the futures market. And the and the uh, economy is about to roll over, so it's it's hard. You have really distinct, different views here. It's an interesting environment for investors if you want to bet one way or the other, though. So, Francis, is forward guidance sort of useless <laughs> at this point? You know, should we just sort of back off of that and just let the data do its work and not get so caught up in you know kind of what ha- what and how many and when and interpreting all of this language? Well, in 2019, we're in a little bit of a predicament, which is that it's clear Powell wants to remove the last vestiges of forward guidance from his statement, although he didn't remove the some further gradual increases today, which suggests he's still okay with it at the margin. But in 2019, we know they're going to be pulling back as they near the end of their hiking cycle, focusing a lot more on the data. But at the same time, we have press conferences from Powell at every single meeting. So all of a sudden, we're going to be, you know, hearing more from Powell, but yet he'll be saying less. I I don't know how markets deal with this. I think Actually, it's a high volatility regime, and there's going to be a lot more focus on all those first-tier and second-tier economic data points that come in. It's not a fun market to play around in. Yeah, but I wonder, too, Jeffrey, if we, when we start to hear from companies, I'm kind of looking forward to the next round of earnings. can be a bit of a grind as we go through all the numbers, but I do feel like we need to hear from corporate America about what they're seeing in terms of their businesses and the outlooks. Yeah, I think, well, ultimately, what happens with the Fed funds rate, Carol, depends on what happens with growth, with earnings, out over the next 12 months. Yeah. And so that's really the key in the heart of it. Right now, the bond market has a, has a slowdown and, you know, perhaps even a cut. 
priced in uh, to the to the out years. So it, it, if the data defies that, then we will have a different outcome. That's my uh, that's where I'm betting. I think growth will hold up over the next 12 months. Corporate earnings will hold up, but not perhaps not at the rate that we've seen in 2018, but will still be decent in 2019. And the unemployment rate, I guess, perhaps most importantly, by the end of next year, it could be 3.2 percent, Carol. And if that happens, then that's below what the Fed is expecting right now based on their projections. And I think that would justify further additional rate increases, and the market will end up being wrong over that uh, 12-month period, the bond market. Hmm. And so, Francis, what what would make the market feel better? Setting the Fed aside, because I think it's safe to say that the Fed has been one thing that's obviously been weighing on this market, but there's also trade. There's also sort of general economic concerns. There's geopolitical concerns. What what would make us feel better? Well, <laughs> clearly, a more optimistic Fed isn't going to do it. We're seeing it in the market pricing right, right now. There's a bear flattener. Almost markets are almost like you know stubborn children, and you say everything's going to be okay. They say I don't believe you at all. I'm going to flatten <laughs> slash invert. I think what would really help here is just a nice upside surprise on the data. Good old fashioned good vanilla data. I think we Which get data that. in particular. Yeah. Do you need to see because the, the, the labor market, the global labor market is pretty tight. So global labor market, not the problem. We're good with jobs. That's not the issue here. The big issue is inflationary expectations. They are very weak on the back of oil and concerns about global activity. So China, we did get a targeted rate cut today from China. Let's right. not forget that as we focus yeah. today on the Fed. European upside surprises. I think that would be fantastic for the U.S. curve right now if we had just a little more hawkishness from the ECB. But at the end of the day, this really comes down to what 2020 is talking about, business investment, a strong consumer, exports. It's a simple GDP equals C plus I plus G plus FX. You know, this is the story that we need to be focusing on. So it's simple. Did you just slate it out for you? Well, so we've always talked, you know, so goes the US, so goes the rest of the world, Jeffrey. So I mean, I am curious, certainly from an investor's perspective, that if the rest of the world is kind of not so great in 2019, do we start to see, you know, money and investment flows back into US markets? Well, you know, I would just echo the earlier comments. The, the Fed is one thing, and I don't think they delivered what markets hope for here to, to sort of turn risk uh, markets around. Right. But what we're watching next is the, the global data. If we do see some stabilization or even a little bit of a pickup in Europe, that helps. If China, if the data there stabilizes and picks up a little, that would be a key turning point. And then the oil price story. I mean, much of what's weighing on many client investor minds is you know the, the, the downdraft in oil. Is that a supply story? Or is that you know global growth? Well, what do you think it is, Jeffrey? I think it's I think it's supply uh, that that it's weighing on the the market price. And then if that's right, Carol, then it's not this demand global growth slowdown story. It's just more of a temporary thing. We could see oil prices come back in the year ahead. Yeah. And if we get that, that that will provide some uh, support to to the market. That's a true bear market. I just want to remind everybody: WTI crude it is down thirty seven percent since the beginning of October. So yeah, it's been dramatic. And, and Francis, how do you think about oil in the broader? picture here? Well, I think about it all day, every day, because to me, it's been the biggest uh, incremental change to the macro atmosphere. Seriously. Absolutely. Oil and U.S. dollar are the most important calls of 2019. Oil flows through into inflation expectations and therefore bonds. It flows to inflation forecasts. It flows through to consumer activity, business investment to the downside. EMs, major developed economies like Canada and the Nordics that are relying on oil. When oil moves to that degree, the entire macro environment shifts. And I'd also be keeping my eye on U.S. dollar, I think that's a really key input for the Federal Reserve. And that outweighs, Francis, oh, 
okay, that's really a bummer for those oil-based economies and oil-based companies. But what about making it cheaper for consumers and also cheaper for companies? I mean, we constantly talk about the U.S. economy, and it's all about the consumer. Well, that's very true. And this is one of the reasons I like the consumer as not just a pillar of U.S. growth, but global growth in the first quarter this year. They get tax receipts. That's great. They get gas relief. That's good. And those headwinds from higher interest rates and mortgages, those shake out by about spring. So that's a bright spot. But let's we not forget that the energy sector has grown to be fairly sizable in the United States. And we're at a point when we judge the economic data here that it's difficult to say in any given quarter, does falling oil actually help or hurt the U.S. economy? The old correlations, they don't exist today. It's so funny because, right, we spent so much time talking about big tech over the last year, but we have to forget uh, or we forget how important energy is. Let's remind everybody of the news. Right. So you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on a Wednesday afternoon. It is Fed Day. We did hear from the Federal Reserve that they are indeed, as expected, uh, hiking rates. Just some commentary that we heard that risks are, quote, roughly balanced. Uh, the Fed judges that some further gradual increases are warranted and signaling two 2019 hikes versus Three, which was uh, their September estimate. Uh, stocks, the major indices now turning positive. We have seen the move lower and all the way actually into the negative. Uh, at the moment, the Dow up about half of 1%, S&P similar, and the NASDAQ now in the green after being in the red for quite some time uh, after the decision there, now up about one-tenth of 1%, Carol. And just a quick check on the 10-year note, 2.8%. We were at 282 heading into the Fed decision at the shorter end of the yield curve, that two-year note with the yield of 267, which is a little bit above, believe it or not, where we were just before that Fed decision. We're talking with Francis Donald over at Manual and Jeffrey Cleveland at Payton and Regal. Just 20 seconds, Francis. What do you want to hear from Jay Powell? Just quickly. I want to know how he's different from the dots. Selfishly, that's what I want to know. I want to know how Powell is thinking about the world differently than these optimistic dots in 2019 and 2020. Where he's getting that optimism and why he hasn't changed it. Hey, Jeffrey Cleveland, what do you want to hear from uh, Jay Powell? Who is I think expected invest- to speak in just a few seconds? <laughs> I think investors really are interested not just in the, the Fed funds rate, which we focused on, but also on quantitative tightening, so-called. So any, any thinking that uh, has changed around the balance sheet size, when it might stabilize, any, any type of question like that, I think would be interesting for risk assets. Jeffrey Cleveland, one more follow-up. What would, he, what would surprise you coming from Jay Powell? I would, surprising would be that, they, uh, with regard to the balance sheet, that something is going to shift uh, soon on that. And, you know, maybe they cease uh, letting it roll off uh, $50 billion per month sooner than, than we think, because we think that should continue over the next year or so. So a, a sooner uh, ceasing of that uh, decline, that would surprise me. Jeffrey Cleveland is chief economist at Payton and Regal in Los Angeles, joining us on the phone from there. Francis Donald, head of macroeconomic strategy at Manulife Asset Management, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you both. All right. Well, a little traveling Wilburys there to bring us to the next segment of the show where we try and figure out what the heck just happened. <laughs> Jay Powell speaking nah. to reporters in Washington for about 45 minutes to help us understand what he said and why the market reacted the way it did, which was, as you just heard, negatively, shall we say. Uh, Steve Blitz, chief U.S. economist for T.S. Lombard, and Alex Harris, bond reporter for Bloomberg, both joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Steve, I want to start with you. You were uh, hanging out in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Markets Lounge, listening to it all come down. What would you hear from Chair Powell? Well, I heard from Chair Powell what a Fed chair says. 
There's two things a Fed chair will never say at this point in time. One, he's out there to prop up the markets. And number two, he's worried about the economy. So he had to, his, his mission was basically to put in a point where he said, we're going to stop now in terms of hiking without conveying these two points, without concerning the marketplace. Now, the Fed being the Fed is certainly not going to forecast a flat or falling growth for next year and rising unemployment, because that will obviously, first of all, it's in their genes and it's in their bias to forecast growth. And so you're saying that even if they were seeing that, they wouldn't say it. Right. Well, because if they saw growth falling down and they would have not tightened at all okay. or they would they would do something completely different. It would beg the question. Because he actually said we have a strong forecast generally for next year. Of course they do. They have to. First of all, everything that's following tells them that they should. It's very hard to see that except capital spending is in housing and other things like that are starting to fall off. But um, look, the Fed has made – let's look and think about 2019, okay? They did what they had to do for this meeting, right? They gave the 25, which the Fed was going to get, which the markets were giving them anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So they got the 25, and they said, look, if the economy does what the markets, what our models say the economy is going to do, that's another 50 basis points. He also said – we're kind of at the low end of neutral. So now we're at the point of tweaking the funds rate to reflect the growth that actually gets delivered. The policy mistake that could occur next year, which is they've done in the past, is that the curve stays flat to negative, modestly negative, and they decide to continue to raise rates through that negative curve, which only will make the curve more negative, and then you set up for the recession later on. But we're not there yet. We're on the precipice, but we're not there yet. All right. So, Alex, what did he say that made the market so grumpy? So, well, just to start things off, I think one of the dangerous things that has happened post-financial crisis is that Fed chairmen have conditioned the markets to to assume that they're going to jump in and save the markets every time they say something they don't like. Bernanke did it in 2013 with this idea of pulling back on QE. Mm-hmm. Janet Yellen had come in and done it. So markets have been conditioned like, oh, anytime there's any sort of instability, the Fed is going to come in and they're going to calm us down. Powell has not done that this year. And I think that's what people are so panicked about and why we kept seeing all this coverage leading up to the meeting saying, well, no, you know, equities haven't sold off this much and the Fed still raised rates. Well, just some food for thought. Year to date, equities are only down 5%. And since they bottomed out... It's been a wild ride, but yes. And since they bottomed out in 2009, they're up threefold. They're up 270%. So 5% in the last decade of fiscal, you know, monetary stimulus where you had all this money rushing into risk assets and out of bonds because of QE, like what Powell did in that presser is basically say, yeah, we're watching it. We see it. We're not coming in. And, And that's where I think the equity markets realize like, oh, dear, like... We're, you know, because he said he's like it's we're that's in the context of a more accommodative path. Like those risk assets rose in the path of monetary stimulus. So wait a minute. So the Russell two thousand. So your small cap universe, not 
you know, these are the companies that don't have exposure to China trade and mm. things like that, unless, of course, the overall economy slows down. They're down about 22% from their late August high. If I look at the large caps, the S&P 500, down about 14.5% from their late September high. So that's, you know, a correction, a bear market for small caps. What does that say? I mean, I, I guess at this point, Steve, I'm curious, what do we believe? Do we believe the financial markets, the equity markets, in terms of what they're telling about the outlook? Or do we believe Fed Chairman... J-PAL, and some of the economic data points that continue to be fairly strong. Right. Well, the financial markets, as we know, typically lead the right. actual numbers. And the Fed is always betwixt and between the two, which is why historically they've raised rates and through a small inversion only to create a larger inversion of the yield curve. But I think the one, the one difficulty in this market in trying to look at it into a normal cyclical window is that after 10 years, money is now a viable alternative asset. Cash. Cash. And if you talk to most mutual fund people, they will tell you there's money. Anyone who actually manages assets, they will tell you that money's moving back. For 10 years, we have forced people out to an uncomfortable place on the risk curve. Now, you could say, look, rates have been going up for two years. That's true. But I think that we know from behavioral finance, et cetera, that the this, this switch isn't continuous. It, it just it switches. And I think when the funds rate in, in September went over two, it turned, a switch turned on. And I think a good part of what's going on in the financial markets, aside from the fact it's December and there's not a lot of liquidity and markets are much more dysfunctional than they were in the past because you don't have market makers making orderly markets. So right. all of that caveat aside, what you're having now is that with the return of cash for the first time in over 10 years is that the markets, people in the markets are readjusting their portfolios and their investment strategies. All those people rushed out into dividend stocks and now saying, oh, you know, I can own yields here. I don't have to own dividend stocks anymore to get a yield. And that's an adjustment process. It was never going to be short. It was never going to be easy. It was always going to take time. And Powell had made the statement not too long ago where he said, listen, you know, we've been raising rates for a year and these things have to catch up in terms of their before we see what the full impact is and this is a way of calling a timeout because you know he says two hikes next year it doesn't mean march it could mean june right right it but could be september an, and december if you're an right. investor though and you're upbeat about the outlook wouldn't you rather still take on some risk if you can even juice your returns even more and and give up that safety of cash if you're upbeat enough about the economic and earnings environment well What's what? What is it when you say no, no, no? I'm not going to take well, that. Well, I think because when you look, you know what I mean. Like yeah. when you look to the 2019, there's a lot of headwinds, right? First of all, you have a you have the Fed walking away from 350 billion dollars of of buying of of Treasuries, and you've got a 1.1 trillion dollar deficit. Um, the anticipation, at least that we have, is that the Chinese economy turns up next year a little bit from the stimulus. We don't know that it will. Trade disruptions are always out there. The emerging markets should be responding to the drop in oil prices, but we don't see that necessarily happening just yet. So there's an awful lot that he even talked about, this Brexit. There's an awful lot of headwinds out there mm-hmm. that impact earnings, right? A third of S&P 500 earnings are global. And so, and even if you're a domestic-only firm, you're still impacted by that uh, through your business. And so I think there's a lot of headwinds. And, and, and so there's a reason to take stock and take pause 
to watch and see how these things start to play out, especially when you have a viable alternative asset. Right, which you didn't have before. Right. And that's the thing, like T-bills still yielding, like a three-month T-bill still yielding more than you know the dividend yield on the S&P. And that's something that's been talked about, I know, at least on TV and definitely yeah, we've on radio. we've talked about it a lot here in certainly the magazine. Yeah, and so now it's like, you don't have duration risk. You might have some rollover risk, but you don't have credit risk. You don't have risk in T-bills, and you can get more yield. So why wouldn't you take a chance on a T-bill? You know, I mean, it's it's a very good question. Yeah. That's why it's like out of all the curves that everyone's talking about, I like looking at the three-month, 10-year yield curve because I do think that in some ways that's going to be a proxy for the risk adjustment. As you see more money coming out of these risk assets and people saying, well, this is way better for me right. to be in a T-bill, that, that that part of the curve might be more of a proxy for, for risk and, and for risk repricing. We're speaking with Alex Harris, bond reporter here at Bloomberg, and Steve Blitz, still with us, the chief U.S. economist over at TS Lombard. So, Steve, turning back to you, so what happens next? You know, we're here, we're on the verge of the holidays, we're going into a 2019 where, and you alluded to this, trade still weighs uh, on the market, earnings we're going to start start to get. What makes this market feel better from your perspective? What data point might get people a little more enthusiastic that, in fact, this is a more stable economy than, than it seems to be saying now? I think it's the acceptance. So when talking about the cash, this isn't mm. people moving 100% of their assets into cash. It's just an adjustment process. So at some point, you feel like a, that, a lot of that adjustment's gone through. But don't forget also, the Fed's eased, right? Make no mistake about it, right? The 10-year is down 50 basis points. The Fed's mm-hmm. eased. Um, the Chinese have put stimulus into their economy, which we think is going to turn. Oil, instead of being $80, is now $50 in round numbers, and that has to be stimulative or no longer contractionary, however you want to look at it. Uh, The dollar should start to give a little bit. Maybe not a lot, but it should start to give a little bit. The ECB has a lot to say about that, but the dollar should give a little bit. So it's not as if all these headwinds and these negatives are occurring without a repricing on the other side. And also the equity market's down a lot. So yeah. now if you want to re-enter the market, people could say this is, maybe we're not at the best price, we'll see, but we're at a better price. So you are seeing adjustments, and the hope is, and with the final one being that the Fed's eased, that these adjustments do stabilize the markets sometime during the first quarter, and then once people see that that's stabilized, then you feel safe to start reinvesting again and going out, especially if employment holds in there. Because if employment holds in and real incomes go up, as long as the equity market's not going off a cliff, uh, housing will pick up at some point next year. What hurt housing not only was higher rates, was the fact that real incomes were falling by the middle of the year. And in some markets, supply, lack of supply. Like We've talked about that as well. So Alex Harris, come on in. I mean, this has certainly been our big focal point. I mean, we're getting ready to round out the year and wrap up another one. Um, I don't know. So what what are some of the things that you're going to be keeping an eye on? Oh, the front end, Carol. I, the I short think, end and, of the yield curve. Well, and, and this is, I'm really not talking end. about the really short end yeah. and those funding markets. And this is something that I thought was um, wrongfully overlooked in the press conference because as um, was well telegraphed by the Fed, they did tweak the interest on excess reserves rate again. It only went up 20 basis points. And why is that significant? Or explain and that. And this is significant because the Fed funds rate 
you know, used to sit really comfortably in the middle of the range. But, you know, given the increase in Treasury bill supply this year, the unwind of the Fed's balance sheet, that has been creeping higher. And it really started to creep higher after the September meeting. Yeah. And it and it's really given the Fed pause because I think it's more comes down to a credibility issue for them because if it they have a 25 basis point band to work with. So if if the Fed funds rate is leaving the band, then there's clearly a problem. You know, it's funny, uh, Peter Bookvar, who I'd like to read his notes, he's Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, and he said, uh, as for that other form of tightening, Powell said, quote, I don't see us changing balance sheet policy, right. which will uh, total a shrinkage of a, another $600 billion next year, taking the two-year drain to slightly more than a trillion dollars. I mean, that, as you said, is one of the factors we'll watch in 2019. That's a big number. It is a big number, and it's a lot lower than what people expect, because I think some people, I mean, like strategists, were estimating, I think, $1.3 trillion. Uh, okay. And that's how far they could take it, which is why you started to see strategists pull forward their end date on the balance sheet on wine to like 2019, beginning of 2020. Um, but this is something I'm going to be looking at because I was talking to someone today and they were meeting with the home loan banks who are 95% of the Fed funds market right now. And they're saying, well, why are the volumes so elevated now? And they're like, well, you know, it's year end funding, but you can bet once 2019 roll, we roll over the calendar, those volumes are going to drop. And when those volumes drop, you're going to start to see the Fed funds rate tick up again. So now we reignite the debate, and we wrote a story on this, is what are they going to do with IOER? Because some people think they do not have enough room, and they cannot take that down to a, a, neg- a zero spread with the reverse repo facility that they're going to only have so many more times where they can make this adjustment. A great final thought from you. Give us one last final thought, Steve, in terms of your takeaway from this. Well, I think I, I just commenting a little bit, maybe not a final thought but on the issue about interest on excess reserves. I think that reserves is the wrong number, the wrong concept. It's not reserves. It's bank capital. It's regulatory capital that yeah. the banks yeah. have to keep. It's a... It's a um, asset decision uh, in terms of where the banks, large banks, really want to keep their capital, whether they keep it at the Fed or not. If the Fed drops IOER more, it just it's not a rele- it's not an end of liquidity system. It's a transfer of ownership of the liquidity in the money markets from the Fed to the large banks. Right. Because they'll hold on to it. And they'll hold on to it because, as, as, as Powell said, 20 percent of large bank assets are sitting in high-quality liquid assets. That's a lot of capital to go into the system, right. but interestingly, it's not capital to lend. It's, and, that's, and, that was all, and that's why calling them reserves and thinking about them as reserves is, a, is, is conceptually wrong because it's not reserves. What's shifting down is the sh- uh, in the Fed balance sheet is the movement of, ca- of large bank capital from being on deposit to Fed to going into the Fed funds market, going to the GC market, going to the FX swap market, wherever it goes that's regulatorily permissible right. is where it goes. And the Fed... So we're not talking about putting it back into the economy? No. It can't lending, go back. Right? From Got a regulatory it. standpoint, right. it can't go back to the economy. It has to stay there. So they drop IOER, they release more of that right. money to go into the money market. Steve Blitz is chief U.S. economist at T.S. Lombard. Alex Harris, bond reporter for Bloomberg. Thank you both. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
Drive to the close. That's punk to music. will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Jeff Crumpleman back with us, Chief Investment Strategist, Director of Equities over at Mar- Mariner Wealth Advisors, based in Cincinnati, uh, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This, as we see stocks uh, hovering near their lows of the session, down 1.5% on uh, roughly the S&P and the Dow Jones Industrial Average, 2.2% lower on the NASDAQ. Jeff, nice to have you back with us. Great to be here. What do we need Thank to you. know? What do you care about what we got from JPL right now? So I, I think, again, you know, there's just this, tendency to to be negative uh, too negative i think what was said today was just fine in terms of our relatively positive narrative going forward and what he said was we're going to hike everybody expected that right but it was all about the communication we're going to hike but not as much as we thought in 2019 right yeah so they took the uh, expected number from three to two so directionally that's fine i think the market wanted to hear you know what we might just pause indefinitely here or take it to one uh, so that was a little disappointing. We're fine. And the key thing was he said we're going to be data dependent. And I don't think that's there's any big surprise there. I think they'll be data dependent. And that's what we need for uh, the no recession scenario, the moderation scenario, not recession scenario. Be data dependent. And that's common sense to do that. I think they will. And so as you look at corporate earnings, you see what is uh, happening within your portfolio and especially at the company level is there a disconnect between what's actually happening with companies and with consumers and what the market is interpreting at this point again it's that negative 10 we're going to worst case outcomes right away multiples have come in from 19 to 14 times next year and this is the punchline that i would suggest that i think tells the story Earnings are going to moderate. The economy's going to moderate. So earnings are going from great to okay. That is way different from going from great to horrible. Great to okay is okay for equities over the next year. So I'm not wildly bullish. I'm just saying we're going to have a more normal, high single-digit return for equities in 2019. So help me out here, because I feel like one of the overriding themes that we've been having here um, at Bloomberg is how cash is now kind of an interesting investment. And we do see more investors moving into cash, right? You can take cash, you can get some yield off of it at this point, um, versus staying in the equity markets, uh, where there's still a fair amount of volatility and risk. What are you seeing among your clients specifically? So cash is more comfortable than it was certainly a year ago. And this whole story about Tina, there is no alternative. That's not a tailwind. But come on, 2% return versus 8% return or 10% return with a current dividend yield of somewhere around 2 is So the dividend yield is certainly on par with what you can get from cash at this point. Yeah. Yeah, but roughly. you were saying the eight to ten percent performance in terms that's, of the equities—that's that's, that's what I would expect to get from equities. But we're not and, getting that this year. Well, we're not getting it this year, but you know what? A calendar—it's a calendar year, so let's you know, kind of take a breath, and it's deferred. And I think for reasons, two reasons: wall worry reasons. Yeah. One is what's the Fed going to do? Number two, what about trade? And everyone's saying, oh, worst case outcomes—it's going to be terrible. That's why multiples have come in to fourteen times. With okay earnings and okay economy, hmm, I would rather be in equities than cash. But I said to Jason, I'm like, are we missing something, right? The financial markets, right, tend to be a leading indicator in terms of what's to come. 
Do you rule it out completely, so I think considering a, the corrections that we've seen? Well, I think that's the operative phrase. There's a big difference between a correction with good data and an ugly bear market in the midst of bad data. You raise cash for those moments of oil shock in the 70s, tech bubbles, uh, 07, 08 financial meltdowns, corrections, you got to let them play out. And I could cite, there, there's a lot of similarities to 16. What was the story in 16? The wall worry was, hey, if this Trump guy gets elected, we're going to have a market crash. Brexit's going to cause a global recession. Right. And oil and China are going to bring the house down here. And guess what? It was a really nice year. Why? Because the data was good. So there's headlines that scare the heck out of us that make us say, what are we missing? And then there's the data points. And I will react when I see the data, when this headline stuff infiltrates the data. But there is some softness in data. We're certainly seeing it in Europe. A little bit, right? There so, is some softness. Even China, we're like not as upbeat as we were in terms of the outlook. There always is stuff that you can point to. Like I'll come back to the, seriously. Now we underweight international. Yeah, we're yeah. underweight small cap. We're overweight large cap U.S. And why? Retail sales, they're great. Unemployment claims at record lows. I could cite other things like industrial production that looks really good, PMIs that are really good. But you would go on and on and on with counter arguments on what looks good. And, and so are you confident enough to be buying uh, in this market? I know financials is a place where, where you, you've looked. So uh, let's talk some names. Like where, where are you going in here? Okay. So first of all, are you confident enough to be buying? So we're always buying because we have new monies coming yep. in and we have to put that to work. Uh, unlike other periods where I would say, and this is part of the issue with the market right now because these wall worry items aren't resolved, instead of buying the dips immediately, the technical price trends are such that we could see a little bit lower from here. Okay. We are. But that said, 60% of the stocks in the S&P 500 down 20%, you betcha there's value out there. Where so, is it? Okay. So within consumer- But they could go lower. They could go a little lower. Okay. But, again, it's downside, upside. I All think right. the upside's way greater than the, the downside from here. Okay. And we can talk about that at any time. Anyway, go ahead. Jason wants to know where you're buying. Okay. <laughs> so within consumer discretionary, we think there are pockets. I'll th- just throw out a couple names. Las Vegas Sands, a Macau Gaming and Hotelier. Yeah. We like uh, Thor, which is a manufacturer distributor of RVs, believe it or not. We can talk about that. Wow. Uh, within technology, we like FireEye, a cybersecurity firm. We like the chips, like a microchip would be a great example. Visa, I've got to tell you, the consumer's not dead. Visa, WorldPay within that area. And then within financials, I gotta, my suggestion would be whenever you get earnings contributions from a sector, which is 20% of the S&P 500 earnings, but market cap that's 13% of the value, right. that's a very good time to step in. Just got 20 seconds. You like Carnival. They're reporting earnings. We do. Are you buying ahead of the earnings? Well, we own, and I, I never get cute ahead of a quarter. I wait to see. We would add if it pulled back a little bit would be my bias to do that, and then we continue to own. All right. Interesting to talk uh, names with you. And we'll see. I mean, I like your optimism because we've had a lot of pessimism when it comes to the economic and market outlook. Um, Have a great holiday. All right. You too. Jeff Crumpleman, Chief Investment Strategist, Director of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors, based in Cincinnati, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 